The Carleton College Convocation Program is a weekly lecture series that brings fresh insights and perspectives from experts in a variety of fields. The program has a rich history dating back several decades. The selected convocation speakers assist the liberal arts mission of centering thoughtful conversations within education and beyond. which is going to be provided by Junior Adi Atichano. Please, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Adi Atichano. I'm a junior computer science major and prospective dance minor and co-director of Semaphore, Carleton's, Carleton College's dance repertory. And I'm truly honored to introduce today's convocation speaker, Jerron Herman. John Herman is a dancer and writer driven to create work that elicits images of freedom and inclusivity. As a fellow dancer, I deeply admire Herman's commitment to promoting and advocating for accessibility within dance. In particular, his work with Kinetic Light, an internationally recognized disability arts ensemble whose work resides at the intersection between technology, design, dance, and art. Herman is an incredibly successful creator whose works have debuted in spaces such as Dance Space Project, Performance Space New York, The Reach, and the Whitney Museum, as well as his most recent work, Vitruvian, which has toured the Baltimore Museum, Museum of Art, curated by Johns Hopkins University and the Oberlin Dance Collective, ODC, in San Francisco. Furthermore, his talk today is in connection with the exhibit Towards a Warm Embrace, a two-person exhibition by New York City-based artists Ezra Banus and Finnegan Shannon, being held at the Perlman Teaching Museum in the Whites. Overall, Herman has a plethora of award-winning works within his repertoire. Some of his most uh, notable accolades include the publication of his play Three Bodies in the June 2022 issue of Theater Magazine, a Spring 2022 Artist Scholar in Residence at Georgetown, a 2021 Grants to, Grants to Artists Award from the Foundation of Contemporary Arts, a 2021 to 2022 Jerome Hill Artist Fellowship in Dance from the Jerome Foundation, the 2021 Petronia Award and Residency, an award that lauds creativity and critical thinking, and a 2020 Disability Futures Fellowship by the Ford Foundation and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Beyond dance, Herman has worked as a model with brands such as Chromat, FFORA, Tommy Hilfiger, Nike, and more in collaboration with the Cerebral Palsy Foundation. Additionally, he is a, a choreographer and co-director of Sensorium EX, a multimodal art project focusing on disability and artificial intelligence. Join me in welcoming Jerron Herman to Carleton College. So grateful to be here this morning. Wow. Um, I'll just begin. Spring had finally flooded New York in that way it's showing off. Clear, warm light streaming into every dark crevice. The loquacious sun persuading folks to undress staunch layers. Confidence becomes an environmental externality the creases of the mouth get massaged into smiles by the sticky sweet honey of vitamin D. Skin is revealed in lustrous hues. 
churning up their diverse melanin to drink up some of those rays. The thermonuclear reality inspires perspiration. Beads form like laurel around the brow as people stroll down avenues, still unsure what jacket is too thick or thin. The viscous wreath honors their intentions to even get out and embrace the air. Not unlike, not, to, not today, sorry. I'm racing south to work along 2nd Avenue, preparing for my last show with a foundational dance company I've worked with since I was 20. I'm 28 and embarking on scary new terrain as a freelance artist. I know this avenue I'm traveling as I've traversed it so often. 2nd Avenue turns into Christie Street south of Houston as a kind of portal into the Lower East Side. Its name change always strikes me. There's a lot of those transforming signs in New York, portals to enter and exit. Streets are named after all. There was the time Christie was my entry to that gallery opening with caviar or the dive bar with the cool wallpaper. I entered the avenue on my way to shopping and to replenish my preferred peanut butter at Whole Foods. If I was jonesing for Chinese on Mott Street, it would hold my hunger until I got there. The experience extended north toward 14th Street, where my East Village neighborhood often whispered to me. The main draw of downtown 2nd Ave had multiple, held multiple dinner parties, debaucherous late nights and sloppy walks home. The avenue saw me at various times of day, noon, 5 p.m., 6 a.m., and I witnessed it too, us looking at the shared shadow we cast across a busy commute or a silent street. My sinew meshed into the pavement for all the miles I paved into it, and my blood flowed so to fuel the steps. My small tenement on 11th Street between 2nd and 1st rested on, uh, on a quiet drag of the neighborhood, rarely visited by tourists or bar crawls, and I would turn right onto the street with an unearned superiority. My house was a beacon, a last post on the great 2nd Avenue, but I'm racing to work on Christie Street. Today is a lot. You see, as I'm preparing for my last show uh, here, after a rehearsal, I must rush up the avenue to another tech rehearsal for another show within a groundbreaking festival titled I Wanna Be With You Everywhere a three-day disabled-led festival featuring offerings, learnings, and performances by a deep list of disabled artists. I'm among them with a piece that will change my life. On Christie, in an underground theater, I sweat. We run this highly athletic section that is fun but harrowing, a combination phrase that includes quick ups and downs, asking the body to embrace the floor, but amplify the air almost immediately. Have you ever done this? Even in your seats now, envision or feel the top crown of your head. Feel it. Roll your head a little bit. Try to make it lighter. Did you find it? Now hold that sensation as you find your pelvic floor. It's an incredibly private space between your buttocks and your genitals. Sorry, it's early, I know, but let's get into it. People might call them Kegels, you know, or that special area. Um, if you're more vulgar, you can squeeze the area and release it as much as you like. It is your point of gravity. Go ahead. 
Squeeze it a little. Awaken it in your seats. It's liberating to think that as you're sitting, still, there's always movement. How often do we take the chance to join the invisible flow of our capillaries in our bloodstream or our silent synapses in movement? Why yogis ask you to focus on your breath is because you have to realize you're already in a yoga pose as you breathe. Now, draw the head away from your pelvic floor. Let it start to rise as if a balloon has caught it and is taking you to the heavens. At the same time, draw your pelvic floor all the way down. Anchor your body to the earth. Don't let the balloon just carry you away. Let's try it together a little bit, yeah? So feel the top, feel the bottom. And collapse. Shake it off, shake it out. And try again, rise up and rise down. And collapse again. Good, I see some movement, I see it. One more time, and then we're gonna stretch until we feel the extension of your vertebrae or the plumb line of your body. Become an object in this moment. Let the flow make you inanimate. Ready? Let's try it. Go. And relax. Thank you. Now, add several pounds of falls into that, and that is essentially what the choreography was. We were ferocious, eating up space casually, but with great effect. We were bad. And my muscles felt the vigor as I left the theater. With awakened weakness, I said goodbye to that rehearsal, the environment already a bit moody by the implications of exit. We all knew I was leaving, and so our effort was somewhat reserved. I come to this company with no previous experience and had amassed knowledge of the onstage and backstage politics of the New York City art scene. I was a good performer, but I could also write a winning grant or recruit a new board member. I was a valuable double, triple threat, but like our lives teach us, there is more out there. I felt the ceiling emerge sometime in the winter before this rehearsal period. I knew that I'd soon need to bet on myself to reach the fulfillment I sought. But there was relatively little proof of a successful independent career as a disabled dance artist. They were all in Europe. I was also turning 30, and on its eve, wanted to spend the next two years in, limit, in limitless exper experimentation. What would it look like if I pushed myself to its hilt until my birthday? My life has always been about delayed experiences, my first kiss when I, was, when I was 20. I rode my first bike at 11, uh, an adult tricycle, proudly. I learned to tie my shoes when I was 16, and I'm just learning how to drive as I took the bus all four years of high school. There's a great mixture of reasons for this alternate reality, but it gives me alternatives for how to proceed. 
If my personal life was about delayed experiences, the professional world had conversely put me on an aggressive conveyor belt. I became a board member at 26. After being on several award panels already, I adjudicated national programs and wrote think pieces. I was being groomed for theatrical service as an expert. My childhood delays had been because of my unique makeup, and my professional progress was due to such a unique makeup. Where others deny a thing, others embrace. I am prone to bicameral thinking, to have systems, as it courses through my body already so fervently. The sun hits my eyes on Christie Street with a propulsion only known to subterranean moles as I emerge with no time to squint as I am due at tech up the street. It's just far enough that I can't saunter, but still within my mind's eye. I know how far 10th Street is, but I cannot get there with ease. I'm hampered by the dual energies of a cool down from a rigorous rehearsal and the anticipation of leading a tech rehearsal. There's no time for a kombucha. I feel my quads tighten instead of releasing with each step, and I worry I'm going to collapse. I still have three, four hours to go. What does it mean to be disabled and young? Our narratives teach an almost vulgar, singular view of debility, wherein there is only stall and decrepitation rather than a nature of degrees. How in PE you, can, you can't muster the mile in time, but you can sink a three-pointer behind your back on the blacktop. How one flight of stairs can send you low, but how you dance all night. How you can make love, but not stand in line before you tire. And how you can have the ability to be multiply employed, but not the total means. But don't we have the ability to be multiply something and still not have the total means? The political identification of disability narrates those degrees in the language of labor. Your benefits are prescribed by how little you contribute, and the global pity is determined by how little you fight. Or maybe pity doesn't care which way. We received our rights via the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990 on the steps of Congress after crawls and unsanctioned curb cuts, after vitriol. There was no other way. As a babe in the shadow of the great proclamation, my rights were swaddled with me in the cradle of a syllabus. The black text of legalization against the austerity of white paper was a recognition of centuries of misuse, mistreatment I did not witness firsthand. Instead, I arrived to my life with neoliberal interventions in the school system and the medical system, smiling white faces always trying to help my blackness or my disability. I always felt I made others nervous because I might break myself in some way or break them in some way. Largely isolated from the world of these disability rights, I pursued typical pursuits, mastery on the wall ball court, being a charmer and a wit, advancing without advancing my identity any. The body would often remind me of my distinction with the responsibility of physical therapy appointments rather than t-ball practice or managing left-hand spasms and midday puberty boners, whereas Paris only dealt with the latter. The weight of fatigue at typing papers until midnight because I took too many AP classes. There was no one in my family with a physical disability, and I had no friends with disabilities growing up. I wasn't to know who would journey with me, but I knew I would find them somewhere. Disability is confounding in another way. 
It introduces time differently. Consider this. I was aged 28, had a disability for 28 years, but was a mere toddler when it came to understanding disability kinship. You can be disabled and young in a, in a drastically different way. As I walked up 2nd Avenue toward the other space, I was also accelerating in wisdom. One understands disability best, I'd say, through osmosis, defined as the gradual or unconscious assimilation of ideas and knowledge. Much like the biological response from which it derives, osmosis moves our being from dispersed to concentrated. When I was at first a maverick, I'm, so, I'm soon a comrade, a club member, invested and galvanized by a, a similar container. My molecules respond to similar properties that sound nearby, an invisible thread and invisible vibration. That was what drew me up to the avenue in my fatigued, weary state. The feeling of understanding and, uh, and similarity comforted me while my quad ached and my mind raced to prepare directives for the lighting, for the lighting team. The years upon the playground, answering probing questions of my gait, my abilities, with medical jargon such as, the left side of the body is affected by involuntary motion caused by the irregular synaptic connections that travel from my brain to my muscles. The years making it in spite of not making it. I arrived to the theater space itself, a beacon of progressive art with a refreshed hope that I would make it physically. Surely, if my intentions were good, if my art was good, that this would be a breeze. The first person I saw was my collaborator, Kevin Gotkin, who was inside preparing their DJ booth. Kevin was the soundscape to my dodgy club maven. He'd, sco he'd score my steps and missteps against a hip, trendy set of bangers. Kevin is an organizer and a scholar who goes by DJ Who Girl <laughs> uh, in a fashion not unlike a superhero alter ego. The toll booth transformation is exciting to watch. Decked in neon and sparkles, Who Girl has the dual ability to make you sweat and monitor your electrolyte intake, to send you into the recesses of your darkness but soothe your demons. No one cares for you on the dance floor like him. And I embrace that care in an earnest way. While we were preparing to become performers, I was also being human. Kevin excitedly plays the finale track, a chopped and screwed remix of Rihanna's Needed Me, kaleidoscopic echoes of You Needed Me, in the melismatic whoo, reverberated like church chords. My knees buckled under the weight of excitement and terror at the moment you're realizing your dreams and how cool this would be. I suddenly leapt around the room trying to exorcise some things. In my spontaneous praise break, the house manager arrived with a cavalcade of answers. When are my light shifts? How did I want a sound to flow? Where was the subwoofer supposed to go? When could the audience come in? Where could people sit on stage? When did I come in? Should the audio describer be on the floor? And benevolently, but violently, what kind of snacks do you want? <laughs> snacks? Here I was holding back tears from competing leg cramps and dizzyingly terrifying imposter syndrome while I try to run the whole piece for the first time and only in this space. And you have the nerve to ask me what snacks I'd like? Almonds and blueberries, please. Oh, some people have a nut allergy. Okay, fine.
after some thought, I settle on granola bars and blueberries. Mere concessions. Kevin and I return to our work. The set list is tight, and the crew just needs to know where to designate the lighting cues. I'm good at this, surprisingly. I can direct. The corridor of light from upstage down was almost inspired. That sudden shift to purple when I near the subwoofer is definitely inspired. They're all with me. I guide the technical aspects of the dance easily, almost forgetting my throbbing limbs until halfway through the run I stop. Unable to continue, I have finally reached my limit today. I wonder if you'd join me in another exercise. Tension. It's what I live with every day, and I'm so curious if others understand the weight. It, if, like a mother to someone without children, you cannot fathom certain pressures without first-hand knowledge. My left side is always tense. I invite you to hold a tense pose. You can flex your biceps, you can, or your feet, or your hands, keep a smile up, do these kegels that we just did, um, while I count, but uh, be in tune with a spasm for a second. Are you ready? All right, assume a pose of some kind. It's tense. And I'll begin counting. Ready? One. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine and a half, one, two, seven, five, 13, 29, 18, relax. Thank you. Now everyone do the sugar plum fairy sweet from the Nutcracker at the same time. Oh, you can also relax if you haven't already. The limit was externally the throbbing quad, but it was also the culmination of a life as a maverick, one who traverses long stretches of time without assistance, who lionizes their independence to myopic degrees. Don't get me wrong, to be fully myself, unaltered, unmoored, and unbent is my chief goal. Pressures abound in typical and unexpected ways to catch us ensnared. It is just as likely that diversity, equity, and inclusion will do some unintentional crushing before it is done. But bootstraps and the pulling up of them is still, excuse me, too tiring when you're only using one hand to do it. The difference between a non-disabled and disabled perspective is possibly its chief symbols, the stairs and the ramp or wheelchair. Where the cis-hetero, land-owning, white, Protestant, able-bodied astronaut ascends a set of stairs in heaven, the queer, disabled, BIPOC organizer who rents goes uh, through the earth. Where one goal is to meet the all-powerful, the all-knowing at the top for reward, another is to interact with and embrace on the other side of that journey. 
embrace. It's been trickled throughout, but let's name this fabulous word. It is first elicited in the shared exhibition Towards a Warm Embrace by my dear friends, Winnegan Shannon and Ezra Bennis. On display now at your lovely teaching museum. They promoted this symbolic choreography to narrate an architectural, thematic, and artistic perspective, which was their proximal relationship to aligning things, if not primarily their proximity to each other. This gesture work done on an exhibition scale is deeply moving to me as it furthers what we already know, that the inanimate is anything but. Everything breathes. And while I don't expect you to hug that ramp or that elevator, in fact, don't, I would like to point out the distinct honor we have to be held by so many invisible things. We owe gratitude to the people, places, and things that keep us upright and help us to sag without injury. Embracing speaks of reciprocity, too. It is the only thing we cannot do by ourselves. It is not a solo activity, and thank goodness, even when you embrace an idea or a way of life, you're still responding in the qualifier, warm. Again, degrees are substantive here. Imagine your preferred temperature, cold room, a hot tea, a sizzling plate, a chill morning. Could you stand for a cold embrace? Doesn't that reveal there's an ideal temperature for certain living things? So if you are ever searching for what's right or what's good and what's beautiful, check the temperature. I want to offer thanks to Ezra and Finn for their countless embraces, warm, sizzling, luscious, constant. We first embraced during a residency beautifully organized by Ezra and featuring a slate of up-and-comers who are solidly influential in the art world today. Ezra, like Professor X, called out to me from a void to learn, to grow, to explore my aesthetics and dare to do it alongside peers. When I was presenting a solo about protests at the Whitney Museum for the 29th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, Finn gifted me one of their benches from the Sit If You Agree series which I use as a performing and architectural base. It centered the two halves of my piece, offering special commentary on labor and disability. Their art knowing my art. It was not unlike how Rauschenberg designed for Cunningham in the 60s, like breeds like. Ezra and his brother Noah, under the moniker Brothers Sick, offered a digital print of their work, An Army of the Sick Cannot Be Defeated to underscore a vignette about the complexity of dexterity and ferocity that I was dancing. It was here I developed my saying, I'm a soloist who isn't siloed, for I'm always surrounded while on stage by myself. These professional embraces lifted me now, again, as I stopped in the middle of tech rehearsal. My other kindred, Kevin, lovingly concerned and understanding when I expressed this is as far as we'd get. Shame and fears of lowered professionalism crept up immediately, even as my muscles still quaked. Should I try to push it? Could I try? Yet ultimately, did I want to? Over the course of building and preparing this piece about a joyous, dis disabled-centered club scene, I hadn't actually lived it. Much like I remember during my Pentecostal upbringing, worse than a sinner is a hypocrite. I couldn't portray joy if I had none, and I couldn't create as the marketing said, a disabled love letter to the Crip Club of your dreams if I pushed past what my body was telling me. And so I finished tech questions, hugged Kevin, left the theater, got a good meal to go, 
and went home. I wept for an hour. What keeps you from embrace? What draws you back from extending your arms when another's is in reach? Time had seemed my answer. I gave so much to a lot of different things and people that I had none for myself. This show with Kevin was called Relative to underscore how I'd perform differently based on proximity to the audience, based on Edouard Glissant's Poetics of Relation and the commiseration crypt, and the commiseration crypt time has with island time, a differing timescape that's bred from changed molecules, from forced stimuli, sometimes chromosomal, sometimes slavery. I wanted to honor how we are mostly unfixed, responding fluidly to so much around us. I placed that fluidity in the club because there were so many juicy, responsive sites, the bathroom line, the bar front, and of course, the dance floor. I planned seating to spill out onto the stage so that I, the performer, could mill through friends and audiences to dispel proscenium. But I wouldn't know who's sitting where or even if my architecture would stand. This devising helped to create a cocoon of promise or success over the event, an intentional opening for variety and a chance to bubble up during performance. Oh, sorry, and variety and chance to bubble up during performance. This was especially welcomed as I dried my eyes. If I allowed for at least 10% of chaos, then I wouldn't be surprised when something went unexpectedly. This shielded me both from despair and fear. This is also my practice of disability aesthetics, where design supports disability identity. It's not as corporate as a quiet space or individualized fidgets, but it was real for this disabled person. I took it as a win. I was performing the final night of the three-day festival, and so had enjoyed several other, pardon, one second, okay, there we go. Um, I was performing the final night of the three-day festival and so had enjoyed several other performances, panels, and general hangs with everyone. I sat on the floor enmeshed in a theater piece by this artist, Neve, and wailed silently during Johanna Hedfa's rapturous song cycle. I took notes as Akemi Nishida spoke during a panel at the Whitney and watched Ezra as he used his heating pad in public. I took one of my favorite Polaroids ever with Carolyn Lazard in the lobby before a set. We both from the steering committee now bonded. When it came time for relative, I donned my silver two-piece and fluorescent sneakers and met Kevin in the dressing room where he presented a quart of Maker's Mark and began a toast. We each took a swig and went to the club uh, and went to get the club started. I held back committing to interrupting the vibe at the designated time. From the dressing room, I heard cheers and joyful noises on the dance floor. I heard the vibratory din of a cool moment. I exited the dressing room on cue and sauntered into the room. It was darkened and already eclectic as I first faced the massive set of bleachers facing front. Turning the corner, I caught the eye of unsuspecting audience members who gleefully guessed at what was about to come. I was nonplussed. Sticking to the beat, uh, I neared the stage. I felt the warmth of a spotlight turn my skin on, but then I was struck by a deep surprise, the seating. In addition to my designated seating on stage, four new enclaves appeared, 
like little islands of self-determined nations. Others had created seating arrangements for themselves. They jutted from the black box out of my control. The liberated seating had, pro had proliferated based on my little germ. Now, how I eternally squealed. Uh, the crowd was with me, and for the first time, excuse me, and for the first time, the crowd was with me from the first step out onto the stage through the conventional center solo, a go-go boy might assume, to the Bustrevidin pathways of my responsive sites. I think it's time for video work. I'd like to show what I'm talking about. And for accessibility, I will also um, um, audio describe the works. A crowd of partiers in wheelchairs, devices, and seated in a performance space, revel in pockets on stage, suffused in purplish light. A DJ, Kevin, is lit above them, reflecting from his green outfit, spinning tracks. Jeron, the dancer, in a silver jumpsuit, emerges among the crowd from the corner. He sets up in the center and begins milling from side to side, his back to us as the spotlight turns on. The crowd starts to hoot. The movement causes him to spin in quick circles until they dissolve into a more languid circle combo. Scene. Jaron is seen dancing in the crowd, stopping to really cut it with friend Park MacArthur, who creates dynamic circles and lines in her chair. They duet before Jaron gets in the goo of a seated area, pushing his body through bodies. moments he's drawn in a corridor of light in front of another group of audience. The air is sucked out as Jaron slowly corkscrews his body 
undulating luxuriously. The jumpsuit gleams as his back muscles and arms get exposed. He rotates his hips until he leans back very far, pushing them forward. The crowd claps in unison to the downbeat. He rises and corkscrews again to give them his back, shifting hips once again as he leans back, now facing them. Several, several turns send him to thicker sweat on audience as the music changes. Transition to another quieter moment. Drawn stands ecstatic in front of the DJ booth and a subwoofer, which others use as seating. The beat sends him into gyrations. until he finally drinks in a long look at the audience. He collapses onto the subwoofer and in between seated guests. finally joins them and everyone in the groove at the party. A send-off. Jerron slowly leaves from the dance floor, allowing the crowd to take over, changing the focus from performance to revelry.
Thank you. So I stopped momentarily to casually tie my shoes, performing a real moment. And as I neared the subwoofer and Kevin's booth, audience sitting on the vibratory platform, I soaked in that personal scan of the room. I got the eyes of folks I'd shared meals with, good wishes with, deep conversations with, walking in packs with, and crying in packs with, funders who had been uh, interested, writers looking for an angle, newly disabled folk trying to find their way, other disabled folk coming to terms, students and scholars, professors and organizers, tech crew and ticket buyers, staff and layperson. Also, this is, was in 2019, so before a whole difference of embrace. And I felt overwhelmed seeing the possibility of togetherness in a groove by that reception. The, the beat kept us in a transformed glow, all of us beaming from the inside. I was just an outward glow. The crowd was with me and they stayed with me even as I left them to party without me. This was important, to keep the world going without its creator. Could I inspire the vibe to live without my facilitation? I changed and joined the party, dancing as myself, sweating as myself. The memory of the quickened quad dissolved by these messages from the subwoofer and the many, many embraces from my friends. This is anyone's story, truly. If we take the time to understand what to receive and how to receive it. A warm embrace is everyone's right. I encourage you to find it every chance you get. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Gerald. We appreciated that, and we're going to have some Q&A in just a second. Yeah. Just a couple of housekeeping announcements. Next week, we'll have uh, Professor Francis Fukuyama, uh, who will be uh, pre presenting the uh, convo entitled The Global Challenge of 2024. Professor Fukuyama has written uh, widely on issues in development and international politics. His 1992 book, The End of History and the Last Man, er, has appeared in over 20 foreign editions. His latest book, Liberalism and Its Discontents, Discontents, was published in May 2022. As to the Convo Luncheon, we are full up. If you didn't RSVP, there's always next week, but I'm afraid today we are full. One more announcement. We would like to hear from Alex Tannenbaum, 25, is a member of the newly formed Student Disability Alliance and would like to say a word about the current museum exhibition. Alex, please. Thank you, this is so exciting. All right, um, as said, my name is Alex Tannenbaum. I'm class of 25, so I'm a junior. Um, thank you for giving me a moment of your time before Q&A. Um, I know this practice does have some discourse, but I am gonna do a quick self-description. I'm just gonna do my outfit. Um, I'm wearing a gray button-up shirt with like fancy robots fighting on it. Um, and blue jeans, a blue corduroy shirt, and importantly to me, a hip brace that extends from my hip to my left leg. Um, 
As mentioned, I am a member of the Carleton Disability Alliance. We meet Sundays at 1.45 and Olin 104. If you're a student, please attend. Um, we talk about disability issues at Carleton and in our lives, and we also talk about disabled joy. Um, as also mentioned, I am a, also a student worker at the Proven Teaching Museum and the White Center for Creativity, which is the big building at the end of College Street. Um, and I've heard a lot about Towards a Warm Embrace today, and if for some reason you're still not convinced about going, here's my pitch. Um, so this exhibit is by New York-based artists Ezra Bennis and Finnegan Shannon, the latter of whom is a Carleton graduate. Um, the exhibit shows the demands of and for accessibility, collectivism, and humor to create a cohesive and interactive exhibition that is both educational and, I am told, relatable to non-disabled audiences as well. And then B, it's only a five to 10 minute walk from here. For me, it's closer to 10 minutes. For my non-mobility challenged friends, it's closer to five minutes. So my favorite part of the exhibit is a new installation that combines warm lighting, recorded conversations between Ezra and Finn, which are subtitled on one of the walls, comfortable seating and heating pads. The heating pads have screen printed covers designed by the artist and printed by Jade Horror's printing class fall term. I've been doing homework in that room with a heating pad set to high because my joints hate the cold and yet I'm in school in Minnesota. <laughs> um, so hopefully I convinced you to make the once again five to 10 minute trek to the museum and see this exhibit. The museum is open seven days a week. You can find the hours on our website. Also on Mondays, we wear masks. Um, if you forget yours or you don't have one, don't worry. Uh, they have a bunch at the front desk. I will be at post-convo lunch if you want to talk about the Carleton Disability Alliance, the exhibit, or anything else. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very, very much indeed. And now, time to hear from you all. Who would like to start off Q&A? Yes, always difficult, the very, very first one. We know you have them. Aha, very good, thank you. Hello, um, I'm Moe, um, I'm a senior here, I'm a dancer, and I also work at the Grauman Teaching Museum. Um, thank you for your talk today. It was very inspiring for me. Um, yeah, as a dancer, I'm kind of like right now thinking of choreographing a piece. And for me, dance is like a space where I can like, I love the sensation in my body that I feel when I'm dancing. I love the connection I can make with people through dance. But at the same time, I hear a lot of comments being like, dance is for visuals and like, it has to be visually appealing. Why do you dance like when I, dance in like in a improvisational way and stuff like it's like kind of hard to communicate the joy that I'm feeling for dancing and I also think a lot about spacing as well where like in order for the audience to feel the connection I feel like small space is better suited but and um yeah when I do dance that's 
when I want to communicate what I want to communicate through dance, I heard sometimes you have to kind of be picky about audience mm -hmm. because not everyone would kind of get it. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm wondering, because I want to make dance open to as many people as possible. Um, yeah, I guess my question is like, why do you dance and like who, you who do you dance for and like how do you make it open? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, great question, great sweater. Um, I need that. Uh, so uh, I, I started dancing based off of an invitation um, from two people, uh, Sean Curran, who's a choreographer, and Heidi Latsky, who um, I danced with for eight years. And I learned, um, mm, I learned so much, but I think I started dancing because of an invitation. Um, dance and other media, other art has the potential to respond to invitations or offer invitations. Uh, I also come from the old school where I believe in catharsis, I believe in arc, I believe in giving, I do believe in kind of figuring out the audience um, in the sense that like you don't have to be prescribed to you know what I do is for them to get it but definitely I want them to have, I want to be cognizant of the experience I want them to have um, so even if it is an improv, you know, what's the overarching theme? What's the overarching idea that we're all kind of thinking through? For me personally, my aesthetics have always been drawn by a, a, a word. Um, so this, uh, this piece, Relative, drew from club and the many machinations of club. So both in architecture, like I thought about the spaces in a club, the bathroom line, the, the, um, the bar. The, um, and the dance floor as just totems of, uh, you know, and, and thinking about the architecture and, and then let that be open. So you can always play with the containers, you know, what's open, what's closed. Uh, I think it's important for us to have those, those frictions and those uh, identifications as artists um, so that we can lead people somewhere. Um, but I also think that, yeah, you, 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 you manifest or you uh, initiate the dreaming and the idea of what can happen, and um, there's always gonna be a think piece. <laughs> no matter what, there's always gonna be a review um, of some kind, so don't get too hampered by that. Um, you know, part of being an artist is uh, putting things out there, and so to be, to be available to the what's, what's received, um, and keep it pressing, keep it moving. Hi. Oh. Hi. Hi, thank you. Um, my name is Dia, I'm the assistant director of TRIO. You actually like answered my question, but I still want to talk to you. <laughs> so I have to think of a new question. Um, what's on your agenda for dance next? Like, what's your next project? Yeah. Just want to know. Totally, yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I was saying, telling Sarah that I, I kind of in a, um, in a, uh, Museum moment, like I'm coming for the museums and thinking about uh, relationship to performing arts for them. Uh, I'm doing a series of installation work for spaces that are not atypical for performance, and um, yeah, it's really exciting um, because yeah, I just think you know, I don't know, non-directed kind of open time space with, with things is really important to me. I also love the cross-disciplinary work, uh, so I'm really excited by that. And um, so that's one thing that's for like ongoing, but then there's really excited, I'm like, returning to my theater background with an explicit full, full theater piece. 
um, that my team and I, we just got to the second round of the National Theater Project with, so yay! Um, I'll be writing it and, uh, and starring in it and, and developing an ensemble for it. Um, and it will be, um, yeah, it'll be extending an idea that I had in 2019. So I'm really excited. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Oh, yeah. Hi. Um, I, I was, you were talking earlier, and I know you have experience as a playwright, and you were talking about your approach to dance mm -hmm. and your philosophy with your relationship dance has to the audience. Yeah. Um, and I guess this is a broader question about just you as a performer, mm -hmm. but um, how much do you trust your audience? Do mm -hmm. you sort of see them as like this homogenous blob mm -hmm. <laughs> who doesn't really you know, who need things spoon-fed to them. Um, how much should you trust your audience, and I guess how much do you want to trust your audience? That's a great question, thank you. Um, I didn't at the first. I thought that I was a babysitter. I did. I thought that like I had to do all the heavy lifting for what an audience uh, does or, or feels or moves, and so I'm kind of contradicting myself a little bit, but I kind of feel like I, yeah, I did have a, I thought I had a lot of responsibility for them, and then I figured out, like, well, my definition for access is giving people uh, the most information to make their own decisions. Um, and I think that, that that stems to art as well, like just giving people the lay of the land, giving them a key and let, letting them play. Um, that 10% chaos thing I, I mentioned, like that piece really transformed me because I had intentions for what something should, how things should happen and then was so surprised and so elated when they created their own reality as well. And so that was really, that was really astounding and beautiful. Um, and I just, like, yeah, I'm so grateful for that moment. So now I'm like, okay, audiences, there's a more elasticity with audiences and the performer or the artist, and I'm really excited to think through that. Um, one, because if it's too fixed, then it's not really responding to the moment, which I think is really important, um, because it's a, de a device for not, uh, for, yeah, for a device for freedom, I would say, to not be too fixed. Yeah. Good morning, thanks Good morning. for coming out. Uh, my you. name is Rue, I'm a dance major here at Carlton. Cool. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about working in spaces that are slightly older, mm -hmm. that don't have ADA kind of designed in mind, yeah. um, and how you've, how you've navigated that. Definitely, really hard. <laughs> it's been a, it's uphill battle. Um, I think that legacy spaces and spaces that haven't thought about um, access and or different bodies is still like, I mean, within the access battle, there is still an infrastructural battle um, where, you know, we're focusing on the audience experience, but then the dressing room is still very inaccessible or the backstage is very inaccessible. So thinking around who's performing is still quite rigid. Um, I think that uh, then there's a, there's a way in which I've become uh, available for the like anti-proscenium work and the you know the the site-specific work, site-responsive work, um, which has been a nice entry to thinking about what that eventual um, Lincoln Center Commission would be, that uh, that eventual Met Opera Commission. Um, so just to say there's, there's a lot of uh, incremental work and um, I, I, I become more engaged with extending my projects to inhabit multiple spaces. Um, one for my audiences, for the different audiences that desire it. Not everyone wants to be in a theater right now. 
uh, or an enclosed space. And so again, being responsive is 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 being is being um, is pretty is, is becoming lucrative. <laughs> it's becoming a really interesting um, experience to towards sustainability, both financially, uh, artistically, and um, relationally with these spaces. Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Caroline. Um, hey. I'm a freshman here at Carleton, and I'm taking ballet this term, mm. and I grew up doing ballet, essentially. Mm. So I guess my question to you is, um, since you mentioned, like, um, having done theater, and I mean, obviously, your presentation is very theatrical, and your, your writing is quite, like, melodic in a sense. Oh. Um, it was very beautiful. Um, so I wanted to ask, like, why did you choose dance, and how have other forms of art really influenced who you've become and who you want to become? Yeah, thanks so much for that question. I, um, I you know, the, my secret sin is that I, I became a, a writer because my older brother uh, is an actor, and um, I really wanted to be invested in the arts somehow, but no one was checking for me as an actor. Um, or as a performer uh, early on, and there was a lot of skepticism around my, my body being on stage. Um, and so there's a little bit of like a consolation with my writing, wherein I just delve so deeply into it as a way to be a part um, of the arts community. And uh, it got me to New York, it got me into the spaces that I really cherish. Uh, and then along the way, so it was because of writing and theater that I, I was introduced to dance because um, I was an education apprentice at the New Victory Theater in New York City, and um, I met some choreographers there, and it's, uh, it was really the, the chance. I thought it was going to be a, a summer anecdote. Oh, I was a dancer for a summer. And also, I was in college still, so I thought, like, okay, yeah, like, I'm just exploring. It just, I just kept working. Like, that's the simplest thing. I just kept working. Heidi's, Heidi Latsky dance had shows for us and we were always in rehearsal. Um, and so it became, and I was, always, I was always excited to extend my body, to be tired through my body, to be extending this thing that had been really fractious for a while, just because of the, again, the skepticism on what I could do. And so I just took the opportunity to try to, to do something. Um, I've always had a kind of chip on my shoulder around, oh, you think I can't? Well, I can. And, that was the opportunity, and um, the, the industry has really embraced me, which I, I, I've, I, I, out of like my, my peers, my non-disabled dancer peers and, and whatnot, I, I'm incredibly um, honored to, to, to have in, encountered the industry with uh, as little barrier to entry as I have. Yeah. We're going to squeak in one more question. Squeak in. You get it. Hi. Um, I hope this question doesn't feel like too off topic or anything. Sure. Um, my name is Carson. Uh, my boyfriend, he's disabled. Mm -hmm. And before he needed to use a wheelchair, he did a lot of figure skating. Mm -hmm. um, and he talks to me a lot about how he misses it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a dancer myself. Um, and I just like, I, I want to support him in any way that I can and like yeah. use language that mm -hmm. makes him feel like he can, you know, explore, um, maybe not figure skating, but like performing mm -hmm. like, essentially again. Yeah. And I was just like wondering if you had anything about sure, that. Sure, definitely. And it's so beautiful. And I appreciate that, oh, that intention because it's real. Um, 
the translating work is is our work. You know, it's the it really is the work of access. What is what is the what is the ideal, and then to create it. I mean, literally. So his his um, experience with um, with ice skating, with figure skating, how can that transfer to his wheeled movement now? You know, or and 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 back to it. Like, how does his wheeled movement and wheeled embodiment factor in and change and let us rethink ice ice skating? Um, I would, you know, uh, one of the things that, like I said, I, I, I love biking or, you know, but I had to have an adult, an adult tricycle um, and that allowed me to, to, to do the typical thing in a way that satisfies my body. So adaptive sports, adaptive relationship to the, to the form is like so par for the course and I would highly encourage you all to look out for what's available. I'm sure Minnesota must have something of that nature Y'all got so much ice. Um, and uh, I think in general, like the languaging that you, you two can have, create, create some new word banks, create some, some, some cross language relationship. Cause I think that we like, so for later, you know, whenever you come up to a, a, a place of impasse about how you both can in, enjoy this moment or enjoy this thing, then you can start to just reframe what it means to you personally. I think. One of the things that I love about um, about access is that, um, and me and Mingus will talk about this in access intimacy, but the relation, our relationship to access changes, again, is unfixed. And so it should be, again, understandably moving and changing and growing with the experiences that you have. Um, I think to be with them in their phantom moment and the phantom limb and the phantom missing is is definitely necessary and important and to not push too far too forward into productivity even what does it mean to stay still in this moment as well um, to initially to really build what you want to build you know the our um, we always have this desire for even what I'm talking about don't get don't don't get your your stiff quad okay don't go there Try to try to get to an intervention before you need to, um, and and explore explore the possibilities together, and invite more people into your village to do that, and you know amass um, amass a network and amass a village that can uh, push forward what you're looking for. Yeah, being together is so much better than being alone. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Gerald, for being here. Thank you all for being here, and that concludes today's convocation.